Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. My guest today has worked in public service since 1979. Prior to that, he was an economist for the Bank of England after graduating from Trinity College, Cambridge. So 40 plus years service with roles to include the Metropolitan Police Authority Home Secretary Representative, chairs of various bodies, a member of the House of Lords, and the president of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management. Here at Heads Talk, we will be talking with my guest about one of his priority, top priority roles, and hopefully gain some valuable insights. But before we do that, here's a message from our sponsors. Privcap Resources Group is a fast-growing Canadian-based private capital leaders platform, facilitating access to investment insights, resources, and capital for its members. It runs senior level forums on private equity, venture capital, and real estate under the brand name, the Club Series in North America and the Euros Forum in Europe. Go Real 2021, its up and coming private equity real estate forum will be held online this spring. For details, please visit us at www.clubseries.org. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle Schwitter. OTGA Management Consultancy works with clients to deliver exceptional results. The services are strategy and business planning, change management, strategic partnerships and alliances, data analytics for efficiency and growth, and development of white papers. Get in touch at www.otgaconsultancy.com. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle Schwitter. Toby Harris, Baron Harris of Haringey, is a Labour Party politician in the House of Lords, taking his life period seat in October 1998. He's been a member of many boards. He's been an advisor to many organisations, both public and private. And among his many chair positions, he's the chair of the National Preparedness Commission, which we'll get into in greater detail in the course of this discussion. I was spoilt for choice with the information I had on Lord Harris, a rich career filled with many interesting and demanding roles. And hopefully I'll be able to talk with him about some of the other roles in the future episode of Heads Talk. But for the time being, here's a sample of the roles Lord Harris currently has, or has had in the past. He chairs the all-party parliamentary group on policing. He's the chair of the fundraising regulator, the body that regulates fundraising across the charitable sectors in England and Wales and Ireland. He's a member of the Joint Committee on National Security. He chaired the Lord's Committee on Olympic and Paralympic Legacy. He was a member of the London Assembly, and he was the first chair of the Metropolitan Police Authority. Lord Harris has also been commissioned to do a number of reviews and inquiry reports, to include the current London Mayor Sadiq Khan's 2016 independent review into London's preparedness to respond to a major terrorist incident. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Lord Harris to Heads Talk today. Good afternoon, Lord Harris. Good afternoon. Right. Um, as mentioned in the introduction, um, this episode of Heads Talk will concentrate on the current work you are doing in your role as the chair of the National Preparedness Commission. We may touch upon your role as the president of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management, but let's start with a straightforward question. What is the National Preparedness Commission and what is the remit of this body? Well, the commission was brought together um, 
by um, people who were interested in trying to raise the preparedness of uh, the UK as a whole uh, to deal with a major crisis, a major threat, um, a major incident of some sort. And the idea was conceived before we got into the current pandemic. But what we found, of course, is that because the, um, I, I think many people have been shocked, shaken, dismayed by the fact that the fabric of their life as they've known it, the fabric of our way of life, um, was disrupted so dramatically by the pandemic. Uh, in some instances, it may be difficult to get back to the same rhythms that, we used to, that we've been used mm. to in the past. And I think that demonstrated to a lot of people when we were talking about uh, the Commission and getting it moving, was that it really is necessary to ensure that as a society, we are better prepared to deal with whatever may come our way. And so that's the idea. The remit is to raise the level of preparedness, not just for national government, but for local governments, local communities, for businesses, for different mm -hmm. organisations, right the way down to the individual and their household. Hmm. Um, we're going to talk to about the, the pandemic in greater detail later in this conversation. Um, so I'm just going to part that there. I'd, I'd like to, to ask, how has the work of um, cyber security increased in the last 10 to 15 years? Well, I think it's um, increased enormously. Uh, I recall, I think about 15, 16 years ago, I started asking questions in, um, in, in Parliament about um, whether the government was satisfied with the level of um, cyber security of the national infrastructure. Mm. And the responses I got were very bland, very confident. It was sort of, you know, the, the tone was, don't worry your, your little head about these things. We've got it all under control, nothing to see here. Um, and I asked these questions repeatedly for two or three years. And then suddenly there was a sea change suddenly you had the sense government was taking this much more seriously. Because the reality is that um, all aspects of our life, including our, the critical infrastructure, is vulnerable to cyber attack. Mm. Whether it's so uh, from um, a sort of bored teenager in, in you know, uh, their parents' yes. house in their, in their bedroom, right the way through to a national state or, um, yes. organized um, attack. And that vulnerability is there, and we really have to design into all of our systems um, a level of security to withstand certainly the casual attempt to intrude, the casual mm -hmm. attempt to disrupt. I have to say that I think there are enormous vulnerabilities in that area, um, and you also have to plan not only to avert and prevent such an attack, but also you have to plan for what you would do if such an attack yes. was successful in some way. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, would you say 5G and the security issues around that is in your remit as well? Um, well, 5G is going to be part of the, um, part of the critical infrastructure. Mm. Um, I think what we're going to see is with uh, an explosion of the number of devices that are connected to the internet, the whole internet of things. And that's going to, it may make our lives enormously more efficient, effective, enjoyable, or whatever it may be, but it creates a whole number of other 
points mm. of vulnerability. Mm. And of course, one of the difficulties with new innovations, with new ideas, with people getting something to market is they need to get to the market quickly. And that sometimes means that products are brought to the market where security has not been built in right from the beginning. Mm. And that means that those products are creating a vulnerability, not only in respect to that product, but anything else that they're connected yes. to. Yes, around it. Um, let's go into some detail about the activities within your organization. Let's look at um, uh, developmental plans, for example. Um, this is kind of a two questions roll into one, so bear with me. Um, if you cannot replicate a scenario in reality, how can you test, how can you use a test that the measures you have in place are adequate? And are there scenarios or potential incidents that we cannot prepare ourselves for? Effectively, what are the limits of the preparedness? It's always very difficult to um, uh, test whether you are prepared enough. Mm. Indeed, what is the right level of preparedness? Um, there are various technical things that you can do. I mean, a number of large organisations are developing what they call digital twins. This is an approach whereby you try and replicate and create a model mm. of your system. And then you see what happens if you, you know, pull something away or something goes wrong or whatever, or whatever else it may be. I think that the, the simple answer to that is that you should be exercising for various scenarios all the time, or certainly on a regular basis. And those exercises should not just involve the technical people involved, but it should involve the decision makers right the way through the organisation. We're used to the idea that if we work in a building, there will be periodic fire, fire alarm tests. We're used to sometimes having to do fire exercises where we all evacuate and so on. You have got to have the same level of awareness and preparedness so that people know what they would do under mm. certain um, dramatic situations. So testing and um, exercising um, is critical in um, a, 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 as part of that. Mm -hmm. And the, the other thing to remember is it probably <coughs> won't be what you planned for. It'll be slightly different. Mm. So I, I know you want to talk about COVID in a moment, but um, many countries had a, pa a, a flu pandemic plan, yet COVID wasn't a flu. It had some of the same characteristics. It wasn't, um, uh, it, it, but there are other elements of it which needed to be taken into account. And that will be true of almost whatever happens. I mean, there's a good argument for saying, um, if you plan for something, you probably prevented it, you, you probably ended up preventing it happening. So it'll be something else, something you haven't planned for that arises. So it's about being ready to expect the unexpected. Mm, yes. Um you presumably work with a number of organizations and stakeholders on, for example, a response um, to an incident. I'm assuming you must create a, a kind of web or with, with interconnectivity and triggers, almost like the London tube map. I mean, how do you ensure that the, the predefined measures and mitigations you, you have in place are coordinated across the different bodies or stakeholders when implementation is required? Just give my listeners a taste of the enormity of the work that is involved here. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that it's not our responsibility to try and make all this happen. What we're trying to do is to raise the game of everybody. So, you know, you as a householder, um, your organisation, uh, your local government area, national government, the, the big companies and so on, should all be playing their part. 
Um, but the reality is um, that you have to look to local organisation, you, you have to ensure that you've given responsibility right the way down your organisation so that people know what they can do, what they should do, they know what they're allowed to do. Uh, this means delegating responsibility because often it'll be the people on the ground who will know best what to do. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things that you've got to make sure happens. But you've also got to remember that everything is now interconnected. If the electricity power goes off, very rapidly, you will lose fresh water. You will also lose the ability to flush away wastewater and sewage. Communications will stop. All of these things are interconnected. You won't have ATMs. That's all part of the same thing. So you have to assume uh, that this is a whole system. If you take one element away, the rest are likely to collapse and you need to plan in that sort of basis. Yes, I, I know. And I'm just, just actually trying to imagine the enormity of that, of all the interconnectivity, all the thing that's networked, it's, it's a minefield. Um, let's look at um, biosecurity and COVID. You've touched upon it. Let's, let's just go straight into it and the situation we are in. Um, I'm assuming that the virus management has been at the forefront of your work, workload in the last year and probably will continue to be so for a while. Um, now that we have, you know, some hindsight, um, what should have happened that didn't with the planning and the management of the pandemic? What worked well and what are your takeaways from this? I think every country has done things in a slightly different way. Um, it's probably also true that every country has had its own problems, some more, some, some less than others. I'm obviously, my viewpoint is colored by being in the United Kingdom, where we have ended up at the moment with one of the highest death rates in the world um, and one of the hardest um, hits to our economy in the world. So maybe that's a symptom of that things have not been as managed as well. But there are several basics in managing any crisis that I think people need to need to have in mind. The first is that you've got to be genuinely strategic. It's not just about dealing with what's immediately in front of you. You've mm. got to think two, three, four, five, six steps ahead. So um, you're trying to stop the spread of the virus. What's going to prevent, you know, you simply tell people they've got to stay at home. What's going to prevent that? What's going to be the legitimate reasons why people have to go out? How do you incentivize people to stay at home? How do you make sure that they get all that they need in terms of basic supplies? You've got to think ahead. You've got to work that through. If you then start saying, right, well, we're now going to unlock. We're going to let people out. You've got to assume that there'll be all this pent up desire for people to go out, socialize, see other people and so on. So plan ahead so that the uh, you don't over overload the system and mm -hmm. perhaps bring the virus back. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is to look at what's happened before. If you go back to previous pandemic, if you go back to the um, huge um, flu ap um, epidemic that took place at the end of the First World War, mm -hmm. now there um, you had a very big peak of the infection. And then six to nine months later, there was a second, even more serious peak. Yes. Now, people have forgotten that that's what happens. Mm. And yet that's what we've seen in this pandemic. <laughs> and I have to say, 
that the lessons from um, uh, 1918 to 1920 were that there was then a third peak about uh, six to nine months after the second peak. So we're not through this yet. Yes, yes, and that's quite scary. You know, countries like New Zealand were hailed for their, their management of the pandemic. Presumably, that's not just because it's an island and, and therefore easy to manage and um, contain the virus. What other measures, perhaps that, that was not um, practiced in other countries, that were put in place that you believe warranted the general feedback we see in here on how well Jacinda Harden managed the whole thing? Well, partly it's about the nature of the leadership. Um, I, I think if you're trying to communicate difficult messages at a difficult time, you've got to have consistency of who the messenger is. Hmm. So a, um, a single individual, in this case, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who uh, would come forward and be honest. Don't overstate it. If you don't know, the, if you don't know what's happening, say you don't know. Mm -hmm. Don't overpromise. Don't say, oh, we'll be out of this in three months. Mm -hmm. Don't say it'll all be over by Christmas or whatever else. You've got to be open and honest with people. When you make a mistake, and you will make mistakes, you've got to be upfront and say, we got that wrong. That's why we're now doing this. Mm -hmm. um, so there's partly that, that, that honesty and that directness and that regularity. This is the face we know we're going to tune in to listen to. So you don't have 16 different people all putting out your messages to the public and perhaps not um, all saying it in quite the same way and quite the same, because that produces confusion. Mm -hmm. um, there's a tremendous temptation in most uh, Western democracies that you leak things out, you try and control the messages and so on. This really doesn't help. In these sort of circumstances, people just want the facts when you're able to give them um, and, and, and don't try and second guess what the reaction is going to be to them. And then the other bit, and I don't think you can manufacture this, is you've got to have empathy. Mm. Your leaders have got to be, have got to demonstrate uh, that they care about the people they're leading, whether it's within their organisation or mm. more generally um, in, um, in, in terms of the public, if, uh, if it's a, a, a you know, sort of national um, situation. So I, I think that's the, 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 the critical part. It's often very important to get the right style of leadership. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, as, a, as an add-on to the, the, the biosecurity conversation, let's look at collection usage and analysis of data for future use and responses. Um, we know an enormous amount of data was gathered and used as part of parcel of the, the whole management and reaction to this pandemic. Will that play a bigger role in um, solutions implementation going forward? Um, we all now know Boris's focus statement, data not dates, um, to ease lockdown. So the process of data, process of gathering, accessing, interpreting and redistributing and at speed the data is, is now more than ever top priority here. Um, what is put in place to ensure that this is done continuously and effectively? Yes, I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure one should use the um, uh, data not dates uh, reference because uh, he said that and then gave a series of dates. <laughs> and those, the dates were what got the headline. This is all about the style of communication. The yes. dates all got the headline 
and nobody noticed um, that it, each of them was prefaced by no earlier than. So here was a promise, we will reopen uh, schools no earlier than, mm -hmm. eight, uh, whatever it was, um, um, the, uh, and, and the same for each of the various schedules that he put out, it was no earlier than. So I'm not, uh, I'm not sure the government's quite following data not date, so that's the right approach. Um, the lesson of the pandemic is that because there is a lag between uh, people catching the disease, for it being detected, for some of them to become ill, uh, for some of them to end up in hospital, for regrettably some of them to die, mm -hmm. that means that it takes really several weeks after something happens before you know exactly what the consequence is. So you have to be monitoring the data. Um, I think there's a lesson about how we use data across society and that there is a lot more information which is available to the authorities, to organisations, than is necessarily used terribly effectively. But with that, of course, comes the warning that not everyone will be entirely happy about their data being shared in that way. So I think there has been a resistance from people using the uh, apps to uh, notify them that they've come into proximity with somebody who may have the virus, simply because they feel, well, hold on, where is that data going? Who is it who knows where, uh, how I've spent my time? Mm -hmm. If I've um, um, perhaps been breaking lockdown rules, will this data mean that I then get a, a visit from the police or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's about carrying the public with you about the use of their data. And but, but, but do not underestimate the importance of having that information and analysing it properly and responding to it effectively. Mm -hmm. And once again, it goes into what you talked about in terms of the communication, how that is communicated to the public helps or hinders how they accept it or not. Um, I'm going to touch upon the, the next bit, even though you, you, you talked about it very early um, in the conversation, but I, I'd like you to sort of add to that. This is about, you know, digitalization rose exponentially during 2020. Um, has this helped or added to the burden of preparedness? And I'm referencing the cybersecurity that we talked about earlier. And has the new enhanced digital capabilities improved your response capability in other areas of risk mitigations? And that will be touching on your role in ISRM. Please provide us with uh, any examples if you can. Okay, I, uh, you're absolutely right, of course. The, um, uh, uh, the ability to go digital has been vital for so many organizations and enterprises. Um, and it's moved incredibly rapidly during the course of the last year. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think back to what it would have been like 10 years ago or even five years ago when the technologies of Zoom and MS Teams and all of these things were nothing like as advanced. Mm -hmm. Would companies, would businesses um, have been able to function in the way that they have been? Would our doctors have been able to communicate with people using video technology um, and, and, and so on. All of that demonstrates how important it's been, how valuable it's been to us in terms of responding to the current pandemic, but also created an enormous vulnerability. Had 
the internet gone down? And there was a question right at the beginning whether there would be enough server capacity mm. to manage this enormous explosion of people communicating by video call and so on. Had the servers gone down, had we lost that connectivity, would we have been able to cope? And there's an important message here that in all of these arrangements, always have the fallback, always think about, well, what if, what is the alternative? Um, and we've got used to um, uh, sort of running our economies on the basis of let's do it in the most efficient way possible. Let's have just in time so that goods are delivered to a supermarket or uh, to a factory or whatever, just in time for when they're needed. That's fine. But perhaps sometimes you need to have a just in case philosophy. What if, what if we can't communicate in this way? What if we can't get those goods at that time? What is our alternative? And so I think it's important not to just get carried away with all of this. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I talked earlier about the vulnerabilities introduced by mm -hmm. Internet of Things and the proliferation of access points for those who might have malign intent, well, that has been, uh, you know, th that has certainly been the case with our reliance on digitalization um, in the last year. And I'm sure additional vulnerabilities are created at the same time. Hmm. Um, let's let's talk on a higher level. Um, it's 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 the dreaded B word Brexit. Um, it's probably too early to say, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, has it impacted your relationship with your European counterparts? Um, is it back to the drawing board? What adjustments need to be made? Um, well, I have to say right from the outset that uh, I feel that as a nation we've made an historic mistake um, by leaving the European Union and leaving the European Union in the way that we have. Mm. Uh, I appreciate that that's a contested view, it happens to be my personal view. I also think there's a real difficulty for any small nation, and let's face it, the United Kingdom is a small nation, we may be punched above our weight in many respects, operating in a um, increasingly uh, complex and difficult world, you need to be part of a grouping. And uh, I know it sounds strange, but I compare it to some of my, the things I came across when I was doing research in prisons on the self-inflicted deaths of young people and the, their vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And I remember one lad saying, uh, it was really very graphic. He said, the only way to survive in here, he was in an institute, in an uh, offenders institution, the only way to survive in here is to find out which is the biggest, baddest gang and join it. Hmm. And there is an element of that within our international relations. Hmm. Um, you know, the European Union uh, is not perfect. It has its uh, um, problems, its bureaucracies, its sloth, its difficult and, and, and so on. Uh, it's not performed particularly well in terms of vaccines. But what it does have is it brings together all of those nations together to work on things together and to support each other. And I think that you've got to remember that there are some entities who would like to break that down for all the wrong reasons. Mm. Not about Britain being able to stand up on its own, 
but about weakening the idea of a European Union, of the strength of that European Union, which then makes it easier for other powers, Russia, China, and so on, mm -hmm. to operate. Mm -hmm. but, but what is the relationship now with European counterparts? What you can tell us, is it, is it business as usual? Uh, will it be changed? Well, it's not, I mean, it's slightly too early to say, it's not business at the moment because all of the existing linkages have been broken. Um, so I, I, earlier today, I was reading something about the issues around the new, the, the replacement in the UK for the European arrest warrant. Mm -hmm. We're not part of that system. Um, some bilateral agreements have been broken and they've been challenged in the courts. So it will take a while for new arrangements to settle down. I think there's a real issue about collaboration between universities mm -hmm. and working together and in particular the free flow of uh, uh, academics between different countries. That's not been resolved as yet. So all of those things are just much more difficult. There's an added step, several steps to be taken in terms of, uh, in, in terms of collaboration. So I, I think this is an adjustment process which will go on for so for quite a number of years mm -hmm. um and um we'll have to see where we end up with once that pro adjustment process has, has been concluded okay okay um so let's go the, the next question it's about resilience and lessons learned um what past incidents um have helped you to augment or improve your responses um to incidents for example with y2k what was learned from that and you know we talk about lessons learned are people actually or organizations actually learning the lessons are you actually using lessons learned to enable you to leapfrog responses to incidents provide us with an example if you can uh, there's a there's a temptation when you survive an incident that you breathe this huge sigh of relief and get back to normal as quickly as possible Hmm. Um, and that's, if you manage to do that, that's what I would call passive resilience. We've survived, we've got on with it. But actually you should be more proactive than that. You should say, okay, we survived that. What are all the things that we identified as that, that we had to get round in a hurry? Mm -hmm. What else do we need to be doing? How else can we make the organisation more agile, more effective in dealing with that? And I think it's that active resilience that concept of agility. And let's be clear, uh, being prepared for bad things obviously has a cost associated with it. But if you've got the agility as an organisation to respond to those bad things, you've also got the agility to respond to opportunities. And that's very important for a business. It means you're agile, you're more likely to be successful because you can grab opportunities. And if something bad happens, you can respond to it effectively. So do we learn? Well, you mentioned um, Y2K, the whole millennium bug issue. Um, the tragedy is, we've just published a paper as the National Preparedness Commission on this. The tragedy is it's gone into popular mythology that um, the whole Y2K millennium bug thing was almost a hoax. Yes. Because nothing very much happened. Planning worked. On Millennium Eve. <laughs> and the, that's exactly the point. The planning worked. The preparations <laughs> the very substantial investment that had taken place had dealt with most of the potential um, crises that might happen. But things did slip through the net. There were a number of nuclear power stations around the world which stopped functioning. Mm. 
there were um, in, the, in the UK, some of the um, air traffic control things didn't function on the night in question. It wasn't a big disaster because it was possible to reset them. And as it happened, not many planes were flying um, over that night because they were just a little bit nervous that something, something might happen. So the, the, the wrong lesson has been learned from Y2K, which is that oh, it all got overhyped. This was a lot, of, a lot of IT consultants trying to make money, uh, telling us to do things which we didn't really need to do. Um, and it was all it was all it was all almost a hoax. The, the reality is you do have to learn lessons. I don't think we're very good at learning lessons. I, every bad incident or everything I've ever been in, somebody comes on and says at the end, we will learn the lessons from this. Learning the lessons isn't quite enough. You've got to do something about those lessons. Mm -hmm. When I was I, I refer to moments of the work I did in prisons. Um, this was a series of tragic cases looking at the, the, uh, the self-inflicted deaths of uh, young mm. people, usually young men, who killed themselves they, in, in prison. Most, the, the, the sheer, when you looked at the investigation, there was always an investigation after each death. So many of the same things were being said time and time again about ligature fix. Uh, the ability to fix lig ligatures in a room, mm -hmm. about the, the, the warning signs and so on. They were there, the lessons weren't learned. They were identified, but nobody did anything about it. And there's a terrible temptation to say, okay, this has been awful. What can we be seen to have done? We've, we've learned all these lessons. Who's actually following through with what did emerge from those incidents and made sure that it's embodied into current practice? Mm -hmm. And I suppose people probably think there's a cost attached to the actions that are required post the lessons learned and who's and in whose budget space will, will be managing that all sorts of things that's probably why you get these sort of repeat incidents I mean as you mentioned with the prison system. Oh yes I mean inevitably it is who's going to pay. Yes. Um, and if it's something and, and it becomes even more difficult if it's something which doesn't happen very often or may never, you know, has never happened before. So we're investing money now for something which we may not see any benefit of for many years. And even then we won't know whether it was the right investment. This is a, a difficult call for anyone to make. Um, uh, so you have to build those processes into your organization so that you can respond effectively to whatever may arise. Uh, and I think that's very difficult for people. Um, but it is essentially what you have to do. And you know, just um, before I move on, sticking with lessons learned, do you think you know, places like in the Far East, like in China, for instance, are better at lessons learned than perhaps here in the West or even in the UK? For example, they had the SARS outbreak and their response to the COVID outbreak was, I don't know, slightly more successful. Am, am I right in saying that? I think that's true, um, but then you are more likely to respond effectively to something to, with which you have become familiar. So if there has been a recent SARS outbreak or a MERS outbreak, and you've known what you needed to do, clicking into that mode, following those protocols is much easier. Mm -hmm. We never really learned that. We never really acquired that because it didn't happen here to the same extent. Mm -hmm. um, you do have to learn from what happens elsewhere, 
you do have to be able to pick up those lessons and 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 and, and make sure that you, you you incorporate them i'm not sure there's necessarily a national psyche which says we're better at learning these lessons and, and preparing for it mm -hmm. but familiarity with things means that that's uh, people respond better i mean there are some parts of the world um, japan maybe california where it's customary to have your grab pack in the event of an earthquake you know under your desk ready for it yeah. um you, uh, if you said that um <laughs> in other places people would think you're mad but actually the same principle applies do you in your household know um where you put the torch uh you know the high powered torch which works hasn't been borrowed by a child or grandchild and left mm. on under a bed somewhere so the battery's gone out do you have a wind-up radio do you have um a, a supply of bottled water enough to last the household for for several days i mean these are all things that anyone can be preparing themselves for um because we've not had an experience recently of needing to do that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing it mm -hmm. and, and just one final point before i move on to the last question uh, this is about lessons learned just the phrase itself do you find it's becoming increasingly redundant because it's so overused and it's the statement or the, the words are used at the end of a situation and therefore people just you know are not learning any lessons because it's just a statement that people use all the time i think it is um it, it is overused um it's so often said frankly with insincerity yes. we will learn the lessons it doesn't say we have learned the lessons it doesn't say say whether having learned the lessons we've done something about it and that's the that that's the issue uh, you know whenever i now whenever i write a report with recommendations i also build into those recommendations the review process for looking at uh whether things have actually happened and whether um action has been taken and whether they now needs to be revised in the light of subsequent experience hmm. okay now let's move on um we always look to the future at ted's talk um especially with the last question um what are the future threats that's on the horizon? Um, are you looking at, I don't know, data tech security issues or perhaps uh, developing technologies such as AI or even climate change, more severe weather issues, et cetera? Elaborate on some of the things that are not quite in the forefront of your organization's workload. Do you foresee this being there in the future? I'm very interested in your response to this one. I think there are it's quite easy and indeed in, in, in the UK our national risk register is written on the basis of focusing on those things that are likely to arise the next two years or at most the next five years. Mm. When you start to talk about issues which are further out from that time horizon it becomes much more difficult yet you may have to be planning for them now. Climate change is the classic example. Mm -hmm. um, this is um, a 20 30 year program that's necessary mm. it requires every country in the world everyone to take play their part in that it's not an easy process you can't just keep putting it off but you can you, but i can, it's very easy for that to happen because people may not see the immediate consequences there were stories in the media a few days ago about uh, whether the gulf stream was changing its mm. course well if that were to happen that has massive consequences for the UK and Northern Europe. Um, 
is that a consequence of climate change? Yes, almost certainly. There are other things of that nature where you should be thinking far ahead. To give you a very tangible example, um, London is protected by the Thames barrier. This is a physical barrier which can prevent tide surges and flood surges hitting central London and flooding the centre of London. Mm -hmm. It's been there, I don't know, 30 so years. Um, when it was first there, on average, the barriers were raised, I don't know, a couple of times a year. It's now more like 30 times a year, 20 right. or 30 times a year. Now that's partly rising sea levels and, and other things. So you start to think, well, um, when do we replace it? Do we need to replace it? Do we need to enhance it? Well, not just at the moment. Uh, there's no immediate need. It's, you know, design capacity can cope with this, cope with that, and so on. Yet the planning cycle for building something as big as that, and it's always controversial, these big projects are controversial because mm -hmm. they use up land and they call, you know, disrupt natural habitats and, and, and so on. The, that, the cycle for doing that is probably 20 or 30 years. So we should be thinking about what is going to be the climate circumstances and the consequence of climate change is not going to be everywhere's warmer. It's going to be that there are going to be more extremes mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of temperature, more storms, more floods um, and, 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 and so on. Um, what, what is likely to be the case 20, 30 years from now and what do we need to be doing now to mitigate those consequences? And that's a long-term decision, one which is very difficult. You threw in uh, AI and developing technologies. We don't really know mm. is the answer. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily one of those people who think that you know we're going to have uh, robots taking over the world. <laughs> but what we will see are systems which are beyond the immediate con comprehension and control of people who are supposed to be in charge of them. We've already got for many networks and many systems, you have legacy systems, you have long-standing legacy systems and then a new system's laid on top of it because mm. it's too difficult, too expensive to rip out the old one and put in a, an entirely new one. Um, the complexity of those, the interconnections between those networks, between one system and another, is now so complicated that very the, 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 there's no longer controlling mind. There's no longer the person who knows how to fix it when it goes wrong. Now, we're creating those systems. AI is going to, and machine learning, is going to accelerate those processes. It's going to bring wonderful efficiencies. It's going to do all sorts of things we would never have imagined possible. At the same time, it's going to create a complexity that when something happens, you won't know why it's happened. Mm. You won't know what to do to undo it, to make things work again. And that's an enormous issue, which I don't think we've really come, come to terms with. That's quite concerning. Are you concerned? Um, I spend my time worrying about things that uh, might happen and difficult situations, things that are, uh, so I, I get used to it. But the reality is that we are living in a world of very considerable uncertainty, a world where I think those uncertainties are rising and we do have to be ready to respond to those. We have to plan on the basis that the, the unexpected will happen, that things that you can't even conceive of at the moment might happen. So what are your basics? What do you need to preserve? What do you need to make sure always happens? And how do you do those, do those essentials in 
the absence of some of the things we take for granted. It's a different sort of mindset. And I suppose with, with some of the, the climate change issues in you know, 30, 40, 50 years time, the irony is we, we, cannot, we probably won't be able to use that phrase lessons learned because it, the devastation would be so great, you wouldn't be able to move from that. Um, you know, the thing I love about doing this podcast, Heads Talk, is that I'm, I'm always learning and I'm always being enlightened. Lord Toby Harris, many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you very much for having me on the programme. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.